We can we can reduce so much air that that is associated with human studies. So think about this. I can feed the pigs the same thing every day for as long as I want. You know, as long as they will as long as they are able to thrive on it. In fact, one of the studies that we did where we formulated uh, using the NHANES, uh, what is it, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, what Americans eat. So the American diet, we made an American diet uh, feed for our pigs, and we had to terminate the project early because our attending veterinarian said it was inhumane for our test subjects because they did not thrive on it. They got brittle bones, they stopped growing, they got fat, their hair fell out, they got pimples. <laughs> so it was a mess. And that happened in three months. And these were, oh, probably 60 day old pigs when they started on it. So in that critical growth period, if you fed what the, the mean American diet, you know, the median right in the middle, um, they can't grow on it. They stopped depositing muscle. They kept gaining weight as fat. So they got extra body fat and they were just chock full of marbling, which is a condition seen in metabolic syndrome. So when they take CT scans of people they suspect of metabolic syndrome, they have uh, less muscle. So they get um, sarcopenia. So that's a shrinkage of the muscle an increase in body fat. They get that central adiposity in humans, which would be a pot belly in humans. But what they see, and this is what sent me down this track to study uh, energy metabolism uh, using the pig model, was these humans with metabolic syndrome had fat inside their muscle, what we would call marbling. So they had intramuscular triglyceride, which is a telltale sign of prediabetes, if not type 2 diabetes, or the condition known as metabolic syndrome. Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates sodcast. Um, pleased to be joined today by Dr. Eric Berg. This is the real Eric Berg, not some other Eric Berg. Um, <laughs> Eric is on the faculty at North Dakota State University. He's a meat scientist in the animal science department there. Uh, received undergraduate and master's degrees from North Dakota State, but then went to uh, Purdue for his doctorate and then went to uh, Texas A&M for his postdoc. And you've been now on faculty at North Dakota State how long? 14 years. 14 years. Yep. Yeah, I was at uh, University of Missouri in Columbia for eight years. So I like to say I've been too hot and too cold, and now I'm back here being too cold again. So. Well, but that's where you grew up is North it Dakota, is. right? Yes. Yep. And, and where exactly did you grow up? I grew up south of Fargo, North Dakota, about 25 miles. I grew up on a cow-calf operation. At our peak, we only had about 100 cows, and um, we would wean calves. And um, so when I left for work on my PhD, my dad kind of downsized a little bit. Um, and um, by the time I came back here, there's no cows left on the farm. But we live on the family farm, and we just finished putting together a, uh, a little feedlot operation that will start getting a few calves in, maybe something a little exotic, something a little different that we'll have in there, and we'll see where it goes. Right now, I've just got three chickens, three cats, two dogs, and some retired therapy horses. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, good luck with uh, the, the new um, operation. Thank you. Um, so... What is a meat scientist, please, and how do you become one? Yeah, I've, I like to throw it back at you, Peter, and say, what isn't a meat scientist? Because when, when I talk about uh, meat science, it, a couple of times here at NDSU, I've, gotten, I've been invited to talk to the incoming freshmen. And, of course, that's the thing. I'm supposed to say what a meat scientist is. And I say, I can relate any career, any career at all to meat science. So do you think you can stump me? 
I've only been stumped uh, once. Okay. Find a career um, that you think is not related to meat science. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I probably something remarkably esoteric. Um, but even that, obviously, if the person hasn't been fed the essential adequate nutrition to develop cognitive capability and have good health, how could they study? How could they learn and, and become whatever that discipline is? So that's, that's uh, my fallback, you know, yeah. because meat science is everything we talk about from conception to consumption. So if we, we, animal welfare, um, everything that affects that living animal through its life is going to affect its muscle growth. It's going to affect its metabolism, its fat deposition. If we're going to eat them at the end, uh, we want that fat deposition to be there to add to the palatability. All that energy storage that goes in the muscle that, that we're going to talk about with regard to diet and how that impacts that. That's how I got interested in studying um, obesity and the metabolic disorders that lead to obesity is because when we started looking at marbling and beef cattle, were we making those, those steers uh, pre-diabetic so that their muscle becomes resistant to insulin and we fill the fat cells inside the muscle? So everything, you know, there's so much that relates to the biology of muscle growth. But then you have the whole offshoot of a consumable product and food safety and animal athletes and just the whole metabolism of things. And then there's a whole industry. Somebody said an architect. How does an architect, how can you relate that to meat science? I said, well, designing uh, feedlots. Temple Grandin has made a career out of designing holding and working shoots and working pens. All of that relates to the stress of the animal. It goes back to meat science. And you have to be an architect to design a, a, a meatpacking plant or a small butcher shop. It's crazy. What can't you do with meat science? That's mm -hmm. what I tell people. It's the best major to be in. And everyone out there looking for a school, you should come to NDSU because we have a meat science option in our animal science degree. Well Got done. From my bosses. Yeah, well done. Um, okay. So... You've been studying, uh, I'm, I'm looking at something that I, that I printed, you know, the, the role of meat in human diet as a means to optimize health and well-being. Okay. So I, I, I've spoken before about the objective evidence of the harm that comes from too little in, in the way of stunting in, in childhood development and something like a quarter of children five and under globally are stunted, which yeah. is going to last for the rest of their life, not just in terms of stature, but their cognitive ability, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, but how about some of these other tie-ins? You've done some interesting, well, first of all, let's take one step back. You talk about eating like a pig. Now, the other thing that occurred to me as you were speaking is, in the swine industry for some time, there was a tremendous pressure to produce leaner and leaner meat. And a significant amount of that was the result of their awareness of uh, amino acid nutrition in their diet. Is, is that a fair statement? It is. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And of course that, that push was part of the quote unquote war on fat that consumers were having. Um, they were purchasing or they were going to retail looking for leaner sources of protein. And that's, that's the rise of chicken, you know, the chicken breast. And that's where we, I free, it was in the late eighties, early nineties where chicken, uh, the amount of chicken consumed surpassed beef. And it was all part of that war on fat. And I think we're starting to see that come around, but to your question, um, Maybe now would be a good time to just kind of talk about why we use pigs as a model for humans to study chronic diseases or so-called diseases of modern civilization, Western civilization. And it's because the digestive system of the pig is uh, very similar to humans, if not, it's, 
and they make an excellent model for studying obesity and the role of insulin as both an anabolic hormone and as a hormone that, that is, can lead to, the, to obesity, can lead to prediabetes, can lead to metabolic syndrome, um, downregulation of insulin receptors, etc. So they're a great model for studying diet and diet combinations on how that animal can thrive to build muscle or to deposit fat. And we can use that production agriculture data to, to look at um, how the livestock industry has progressed from looking at crude protein to looking at specific amino acids. And I know as a meat scientist that if I want to increase the marbling in pigs, I bottom out lysine. So the essential amino acid lysine is the first limiting amino acid in grains. It's very, very low. So that's why we combine it with soybeans. So a corn soybean diet is the pig diet. So now we've balanced the protein because the soybeans contain a high content of lysine. So the corn or the grain and the soybeans bring that, those amino acids up to par. So we make them level. That's why my, top, my, my talks are titled Eating Like a Pig. If you choose to be a vegetarian, you have to pay attention. You can't just subside on grains. You're going to have to combine lentils with grains. You're going to have to combine the different sources of protein so you can balance those amino acids. That crude protein isn't going to tell you anything because there's so many factors that go into that. The balance of amino acids, especially the indispensable amino acids. And not only that, they may not even be bioavailable. They might be bound up in the fiber. Because think, what's the whole purpose of that seed, that grain? It's to survive being eaten by a bird, being eaten by an herbivore, by grazing livestock. So it can get pooped out with fertilizer and grow more plants. So those plants, those seeds have evolved to be resistant to digestion. So that wheat that is the most consumed grain product in the world is only 42% bioavailable. So now if you have a high protein wheat, that it's just for ease of math, you have a product that has 10 grams of crude protein, only 42% of that is bioavailable, but it probably only has 0.4 grams Per, so not even one gram, you know, it's, it's, it's got such a minimal amount of lysine in there that you would have to eat and eat and eat and you'd get all that carbohydrate along with it that the pure caloric nature to meet your protein needs just from a grain source would make you full and you'd stop before you even got your amino acids. And that's why we see in some of these countries where we have stunting at the same time we see obesity because they may be calorically rich, but they're deficient in their essential amino acids, which leads to an overconsumption of carbohydrate and can lead to stunting during early development because they're not getting the, the high quality protein. Later in life, it can, it can uh, lead to wasting where you get muscle tissue loss, like older adults, if they're not getting all their essential amino acids. But if they're eating those grain sources without balancing them, like we would for a pig ration, they can become obese because of the overconsumption of carbohydrates that come along with that. So, so that's a lot to digest, if you will. Yes. Well, let's ruminate, ruminate on that a bit. Um, so yeah, so uh, let's unpack a couple things. Number one, you were talking about wheat but or any cereal, but we tend to process cereals. We tend not to eat them in their raw state Correct. and that processing does not enhance the digestibility or bioavailability of some nutrients correct well let me say this so here's another place we can use livestock science so if we were to feed uh, as a ruminant nutritionist if we were to feed this that whole kernel corn to cattle they would masticate some of it. They would be able to break it and grind it up. But of course, they wouldn't get the full effect of it because it's the whole kernel corn. So as managers of livestock, we either crack it or we grind it. 
So we grind it. It does improve the digestibility of the whole product because we see that as we reduce the particle size of, of our feeds, we improve the rate of gain because they get that energy. They don't necessarily get the, the protein out of there. That's, that's, still, that's not going to change the, the digestibility of the amino acid source from there. But it is going to improve the digestibility of the energy source. So those animals are going to gain weight the more you reduce that particle size as long as the palatability is maintained. If it's too small, it gets too dusty and they don't eat it. So the, that, that, that is a great correlation. I've, I've always wanted to write a review article about this because it's a great correlation to processed foods. Mm-hmm. So uh, because we've reduced that particle size, so it's just like livestock. The, the, there's less, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of research out there that would suggest that whole grains don't impact obesity as much. And maybe that's part of the reason because we haven't cracked it. We haven't brought it all down. So it's even less digestible as a whole grain. And we have to have that all important fiber from there or we won't poop, you know. So um, we've got to have, have that. So we push the whole grains. But that refined bread, we've exposed the, the refined wheat, you know, the, the, the old wonder bread. If, if that was our energy source, and it is a great energy source, it's very, that energy is very bioavailable, just like the highly processed feed that we feed to our livestock. So again, but pigs we, are a great example for that because of that particle size. But when we bake bread or we make breakfast cereal out of wheat we not only reduce the particle size, but we also then take especially lysine and make it less available Yes, and less digestible. So what was already bad becomes worse when we process it. Does the same thing happen with high quality sources of protein like pork belly or uh, other animal source uh, foods, especially meats? Okay. There are two projects that I did in collaboration with the University of Illinois. Dr. Hans Stein, he is one of the top three global scientists, and his lab does ileal digestibility. So his lab tests all types of food products using pigs as a model to test the digestibility of them. And he and I uh, completed two studies. One's in the British Journal of Nutrition. The other is in the Journal of Nutrition uh, out of the United States. And we looked at how processing of meats impacts their digestibility. Now, processing is a pretty broad term because one of the means of processing that we looked at was pork chops and um, ribeyes. So a well-done ribeye versus a rare ribeye. Does cooking a steak too well done uh, decrease its digestibility? We looked at raw hamburger versus cooked hamburger, cooked hamburger to well done. And we looked at fermented meat products like salami. We looked at smoked products like bologna and bacon. So smoked and then um, cooked, baked bacon. So the cooking process. And what we found was, in, let's just start with ground beef, okay, because that's the most widely consumed uh, beef product that we have. So by cooking the ground beef to well done, we reduced the digestibility because of the, we increased the surface area of it. So we ground that product like we were talking with the feed. So the raw product had a digestibility score above 100, but when we cooked it, it dropped below 100. Okay, now get to that. We call that the digestible um, indispensable amino acid score. So DIAS is what we abbreviated as, D-I-A-A-S. And that's the ileal digestibility of those foods. So we reduce the digestibility of that. It's still considered a good protein source for protein quality, but its it's DIAS score was 92, I believe, if I remember right, after it was cooked. And before it was over 100, so nobody eats raw ground beef. So let's do the equivalent of the rare, medium, or well-done steaks. So we cooked those, and we found that the more we cooked the beef, the lower the digestibility score was. So the medium rare actually turned out to be the most digestible. 
But you know what stood out the most was those highly processed foods. Okay? And when we published summaries of this, this got published, uh, we, we, there was a media release in Meeting Place. I don't know if you look at Meeting Place, but uh, Dr. Stein, his, his media group from Illinois had put it in for uh, a media release. And Meeting Place is, a, uh, it summarizes industry news, it summarizes research, and they allow comments. So the comments in there, as a scientist, I hate reading the comments, but there was, this is BS research because processed meats, that's not high quality protein. Well, it's that same high quality protein. And in order to improve the shelf life, we've added antioxidants to it. We've added things that stabilize the protein and we cook it at a lower temperature for a prolonged period of time in that smoking. So it doesn't have that shock of high heat very rapidly. And it's basically pre-chewed. You know, think of bologna. That's the finest of, of emulsification. It's a batter. It's not ground beef. It's emulsified into a batter. So the access to those amino acids has already been started. You've started the digestive. You took the chewing out of it, you know, because it's, it's a hot dog now. It's bologna. So... That fermentation process for salami, not only have you grounded, but we've learned that uh, fermentation also opens up the digestibility for amino acids. Think of when we, um, oh, uh, tofu, or um, what's the fermented product of tofu? Is tofu fermented? Uh, I don't. When we ferment soybeans, yeah. it takes care or... of some of that, that fiber that binds up and slows the digestibility of it. So, you know, cultures that ferment foods, uh, that allows the release of those proteins. So it makes it more digestible, more bioavailable. Hmm. So we saw that. And so when you think about it, it's not that shocking that we improve the digestibility by either fermenting or by reducing the particle size and so, by adding antioxidants. So... So in a real sense, we're, we're, we're taking a lower value cut of, or cuts of meat and, um, and then it, actually, it gets improved in terms of digestibility and then these other things are added to it in terms of stability or access to it. I mean, we're thinking of how people can obtain more animal source food and so it would be misleading to talk about processed plant products and plant processed animal products at the same time as if they're the same thing. Yep. yep. So that DS score, that is basically a comparison to a reference protein. And there are different reference proteins that are used to report uh, the quality of proteins for say infants versus adolescents versus adults. Uh, so we, uh, we, in our publications, we classified for six months to weaning, basically three years, and then um, young children up to adult. So we had those two categories. And the meat products we tested were, there were only two out of the, man, how many do we have? Uh, 16, uh, 18 different products we tested just the ground beef and the well-done steak were below 100. So compared to, so 100 would be equivalent to the reference protein. So in adults, most of the time it's casein, so a dairy protein that they use as the reference protein. Uh, but it could be egg. And it's breast milk for young, protein from human breast milk that they use as comparison for, for young children up to weaning. That's why they draw the line there. That, uh, so the animal source foods are excellent sources. And when they're over 100, we call them, they have the capability of being a complementary food. So now uh, if, if we're recommending, let's just say the RDA, which is the bare minimum supposed to be, is three ounces of that medium rare steak a day or that roast beef. Um, if 
we're going to use that, let's just say we can't afford that. So we could maybe cut that in half and serve it with a plant source that has a lower quality protein because we were over 100%. So just like adding the soybeans to the grains, we've balanced it. But it's a lot easier to do with animal source foods because there's so much higher over 100. And you have, that's a sandwich, you know? You, that's, that's how a sandwich was invented. So you could, you could pile it all on there. And so you have complementary foods and you have a, a, a mixed diet, as they would call it. So a couple times already it's come up and we spoke a little bit before we got started. And um, sometimes I lose track of what we've spoken about when, um, but I've, I've made the statement before that human animal nutritionists and veterinarians can do research that human nutritionists and physicians will never be able to do. Um, and it's not a bad thing. <laughs> there are, you know, ethical considerations involved, but describe the kind of control that you can have in a feeding study when you're working with swine, for example, as a model of, and by a model, you mean uh, a suitable representative of what happens in human beings. Just what kind of control can you have in those studies? We can, we can reduce so much error that, that is associated with human studies. So think about this. I can feed the pigs the same thing every day for as long as I want, you know, as long as they will, as long as they are able to thrive on it. In fact, one of the studies that we did where we formulated uh, using the NHANES, uh, what is it, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, what Americans eat. So the American diet, we made an American diet uh, feed for our pigs, and we had to terminate the project early because our attending veterinarian said it was inhumane for our test subjects because they did not thrive on it. They got brittle bones, they stopped growing, they got fat, their hair fell out, they got pimples. <laughs> So it was a mess, and wow. that happened in three months. And these were, oh, probably 60-day-old pigs when they started on it. So in that critical growth period, if you fed what the the mean American diet, you know, the median, right in the middle, um, they can't grow on it. They stopped depositing muscle. They kept gaining weight as fat. So they got extra body fat, and they were just chock full of marbling, which is a condition seen in metabolic syndrome. So when they take CT scans of people they suspect of metabolic syndrome, they have uh, less muscle, so they get um, sarcopenia. So that's a shrinkage of the muscle, an increase in body fat. They get that central adiposity in humans, which would be a pot belly in humans. But what they see, and this is what sent me down this track to study uh, energy metabolism, uh, using the pig model, was these humans with metabolic syndrome had fat inside their muscle, what we would call marbling. So they had intramuscular triglyceride, which is a telltale sign of prediabetes, if not type 2 diabetes, or the condition known as metabolic syndrome. And we, we strive for that. But in, in our livestock species, I mean, in humans, it's debilitating because it, it, the physiological condition that's happening is insulin resistance, but it's not a systemic insulin resistance. It's the muscle becomes insulin resistant. So here's the progression of disease. So if you're under-indexing on essential amino acids, over-indexing on carbohydrates, let's just say you're a very un uneducated vegetarian. And I'm going to, here I've got uh, my whole grains salad that I'm going to eat today. You haven't balanced your proteins, but you're over-indexing on those carbohydrates. So if you, if you do that for a prolonged period of time, if you're not exercising, your muscle is going to say that it's full. It's full of glycogen. The liver is already full of glycogen. So now as you continue to eat carbohydrates, the, the carbohydrates are going to 
not be able to get into the muscle because the insulin receptors on the muscle to escort the glucose in there, they've downregulated. So the muscle is insulin resistant. The thing is we need that insulin for protein synthesis, but now insulin doesn't work on the muscle. So the muscle shrinks and you eat yourself fatter and fatter because the insulin receptors are still on the fat. So your blood sugar goes up, warning sign. Your triglycerides go up because the blood sugar goes back to the liver. The liver says, I don't need any more glucose. My glycogen is full. So what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to change that into fat and send that back to the adipose tissue, which starts to fill up in the muscle, starts to fill up in the liver. So you know you have another condition, non-alcoholic fatty liver uh, disease, which is a precursor, part of metabolic syndrome, part of that progression of disease. And you're depositing more fat on the outside. You're depositing muscle, uh, fat in the muscle. And eventually the whole system is going to give up and you get that type 2 diabetes diagnosis. So pigs are a great model for studying that because it affects them in a shorter period of time than it does in humans. And you can precisely monitor what they eat yep. for as long as you choose. You can you can determine exactly what they're eating, not going to table values and assuming you can do quality control on the diet. Correct. Um, and also you can have some genetic similarity in the, the study subjects, if you will, as well as the environmental control where they're living at, during Correct. research. Yep. I can control their exercise. They could all have the same dad. They, I can test siblings, you know, male versus female. If I have a breed of pigs, it's going to give me 18 piglets and uh, nine are males, nine are females. Well, there's a great same dad, same mom, and all those siblings. It's, it's a pretty fantastic model. But yeah. some would argue it's too perfect. Isn't that silly? Because... Mm -hmm. Humans are, have such a plethora of food, especially in the United States, we have a bounty of food to choose from that a highly regulated study may not be applicable to our chaos that we live in. I get criticized yeah. for that too. Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of being too cute by half. You are, a, you're, you're pretending in nutritional, what was it you told me that you don't rely on in your feeding studies? What was that? I don't remember. What oh, did sorry. I say? It, it had to do with food frequency questionnaires. Oh yeah. You don't rely on their memory. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember what you had for supper last night? Maybe no, you of do. course not. You know, and, and pigs lie. We know this. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but so we, we have so much in public health policy that's based on what everyone who's involved with it knows to be the softest, weakest quality evidence. And so then they're going to criticize somebody who's actually looking with some rigor and control. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's okay. I get it. There's these necessary limitations, but let's not act as if you're as rigorous as what has been done now for decades in, for example, swine nutrition. Um, and, and so I, I just, I, I find that just an amazing argument that they, Oh, just that, that you can't do, that's not good that you're too controlled. That's, that's, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us something that we ought to be paying attention to when we then tell people that, yeah, you can fatten pigs on this ration, but it's what we should be eating to lose fat. It, excuse me? Um, okay, uh, but I digest. Uh, back to the point. Um, we already were talking about crude protein. Mm -hmm. And I've had people kind of look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language when I say that crude protein is not protein. So could we just explore that space just a little bit? Sure. Uh, so those who look at food labels, they, uh, if they're looking for protein, you know, they can go right to the, the food label. And that, uh, an example I use in my talk is I can find a, a bagel, a whole grain bagel that has 10 grams of protein per serving. 
that's crude protein. It's a wheat bagel. You know, it's a whole grain wheat bagel. So we know that the digestibility indispensable amino acid score for that is 42 for that whole wheat grain. So that means that 42% of 10 grams is what's bioavailable to me. So roughly half. So I have to eat two of these big bagels, you know, because they got to be big to get 10 grams of protein, <laughs> of crude protein. But I have to eat two of them just to get the caloric equivalents of that 10 grams of digestible protein. But it doesn't stop there because that... Uh, we know that the digestible, the, 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 the quantity of the indispensable amino acids aren't there in that grain either. So not only is it less than half digestible, we get half that crude protein. If the first limiting amino acid of those essential amino acids is lysine in that grain product, and I'm going to have to eat, I forget, it's like 12 bagels just to get my daily lysine requirement, my minimum, the RDA that's put out by the Food and Agriculture Organization from the UN that says for 172-pound human being, you need X amount. So now just to get that lysine, I have to eat my body weight, <laughs> or at least my head weight in bagels just to get my lysine requirement. And that's, that's, that's not sustainable. And just think of all that energy that comes along, all that starch. And that's where we get in trouble. So we might be do-gooders, do and we want to get calories to people in famine areas. So what do we send them? We send them grains. But are we really doing them any favors? Even if it's high-protein wheat, it's still not as digestible. And just getting calories in them is not what we need to do. Maybe we should make a – I know there are some food companies out there that uh, some meat companies that are looking at shelf-stable foods of animal origin that they can send to these countries so they can get their, their essential amino acids in a smaller, uh, it's nutrient-dense, plus it's got iron. So iron and indispensable amino acid deficiency are the two biggest malnutrition uh, problems globally. So we've heard of anemia for forever. But now you can give them beef rich in bioavailable iron and rich in an excellent source. Even jerky, a shelf-stable product, is, is an excellent source, over 100% for a diet score that you could send. And you could give it to – and it's delicious. So if you had to choose between grain porridge or a high-quality, delicious iron and protein source, it's, it's so you can help people thrive – Mm -hmm. Seems like Absolutely. a no-brainer. And and to be sure, in some cultures, we'd have to shift the, the ingredients sure. to be appropriate. But still, Correct. that animal source food in the diet is essential. And um, we, we have objective evidence of the harm that comes from a lack. And one of my uh, missions is to get people to really think about why they think there's such a thing as too much from a nutrition and health perspective yes uh, we could also talk about environmental but just from the just stay at one strand of the rope at a time let's just deal with the uh, the health and nutrition and the people that i've been consulting with uh, can find no high quality scientific evidence to support too much it always goes back to nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease saying so without really any hard high quality scientific evidence to back it up. So I, I think that it's fair to point out that uh, with plant source foods, a some and sometimes significant amount of what's what's represented as crude protein is actually coming from non-protein nitrogen that we then convert, we, we analyze for total nitrogen, then we convert it into crude protein. So I think in potatoes, it's something like a quarter of that crude protein is actually non-protein nitrogen. Um, so so it's, it's, it's not even true protein. And then we have to step it down and say, how much of that 
true protein is biologically available, how much of it is made up of these indispensable amino acids that we have, and how much of those can we uh, digest. I was having a conversation with um, someone recently, and they said that for a growing boy, say, trying to um, obtain all of their essential um, um, amino acid needs from a lentil and rice diet, they physically couldn't eat enough. If they had unlimited access, they just physically couldn't eat enough to supply their needs. Mm -hmm. And I know that my collaborator, Dr. Stein, has worked in India, and he's worked with their government, and they were looking at economical combinations to reach uh, a balanced amino acid profile, and they settled on soy protein isolate because that was the cheapest source, because when you're feeding mm -hmm. a billion kids a day, uh, the every penny, every fraction of a penny adds up to lots, lots, and lots of money. So animal source foods are more expensive sources of protein. But so the, then you have the ethical argument, you know, um, will people be able to thrive on that? And does a diet of, of soy protein, soy protein flour, basically, is that palatable to two people? So now you have to figure out a way to make it at least palatable. And if it's, it's not going to be delicious, but it's, it's like going to be like a porridge thing. My family and I, we volunteered for, I think it's called feeding our children or uh, it's a, a national thing where they go around and you feed, you'll fill these, um, these nutrition bags and that's the protein pack that you put in there is soy protein isolate that with the grains for energy so it's it's essentially what the ingredients we have in a swine feed and it's the cheapest way to do that this is also the same reason we don't put whey protein in our swine rations because it's more expensive than soy protein mm -hmm. so we balance it there so it is possible to balance your amino acids on a, for a vegetarian diet. And, and it's a I lot of work. I, you have to be yeah. a protein chemist. You have to be a chemist to do that. Well, and I think that it's fair to point out that uh, vegetarian is actually another name for omnivore. It, it's just you're going to, for whatever, typically you're going to not eat red meat. That's typically, but then we have various other forms and labels. But you know, it, 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 it's almost like we don't want to say we're an omnivore and clearly if you're eating fish or you're eating eggs or you're eating dairy as part of your diet, you can do that. It's when you get rid of all animal source food in your diet that it becomes very difficult, I think is a fair statement. Correct. Yeah. The vegan, I think flexitarian, that's the new trendy Thing where you only eat meat some of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and and there's the some, new omnivores. Yeah, there, there's 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 some very well known groups that define, you know, vegetarian as you only eat meat so many days out of the month. You know, and which is not what most people would think it means. So again, you have people who are trying to come up with. Uh, play games uh, might be an uncharitable way to describe it. Um, so you did a study or you were part of a study where you fed, well, one of the things that you can do, and Adele Height reminded me of this in the middle of a presentation, she was in the audience and she spoke it out loud. Um, it's hard to find human beings that'll volunteer for a feeding study where you sacrifice them at the end of the study to determine body composition. Right. Um, and we do call that production agriculture at a certain point. So you build up lots of data as well as what you can do in a research study. And so you did a study where you compared um, swine rations. And I believe one was with hamburger and the other was with the, the uh, was that the 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 N Haynes data that was pulled out? Okay, 
Yep. Yep. So, so in addition, I just I, I still can't get over the fact that the vet stopped called the game because the score got out of hand. Yeah. When are they going to do that for the population? Um, when everybody what, gets what, corona, because there's the contraindications there with the obesity. So there's it just there's a why and and the. the the physicians in the know they see that correlation and they 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 say we need to back up here and focus on our nutrition and what has made america the second fattest nation in the world behind samoa yeah well and and to be fair this is now a global phenomenon i think Correct. that i i think i've heard and um, people can surely correct me, but I believe the rate of obesity in South Africa is not that different from what we have in North America. No. Um, and India. clearly, we, yeah, we've got cultural problem uh, um, differences and they need to be taken into account. We have genetic differences amongst populations and that needs to be taken into account. You know, it's not a, a uniform population of human beings that respond uniformly to whatever. But um, so what in, I remember seeing pictures and if we can find those to somehow get them published of, of what the, now where do you split the carcass when you have it hanging on the rail? Well, we, we typically, when you're doing a carcass contest for a livestock show, they look at the 10th rib between the 10th and 11th rib. So we're measuring the subcutaneous fat there. So it would be back fat. And at the same time, we measure the loin muscle area. It's a nice muscle that we use as a measure of how much muscle growth is happening. Okay. So... When we finished this study, of course, we humanely harvested all the animals and we were able to collect all kinds of tissues to look at all different things. And uh, we collected muscle and fat samples to look at insulin receptors in both of those. And then we took these great pictures that showed, um, well, I better back up. So the two diets that we looked, we used the NHANES data and the one diet was just what Americans eat, the the median American, um, age two to 102. And the, the test diet, we took all the sugar, the refined sugar, not all the carbohydrate, just the, uh, the refined sugar out and replaced it with ground beef on a, a calorie for calorie basis. So there was still uh, starch in there. There was still carbohydrate in there, but it was roughly half of what was in the American diet. And so we fed this for three months during an active growth period. We used an old fashioned breed of pigs, uh, Berkshires, that are, if you look up uh, swine models for humans, that's a very highly recommended breed of pigs for looking at obesity and insulin resistance. And the body composition uh, was just it, there was the the ones that had the ground beef in their diet they continued to grow they deposited muscle normally and they had less fat and i could find the picture to pull up and share a screen but we can do that later and the but the the muscle tissue was flat in the american diet it was full of marbling full of intramuscular triglyceride there was about um i don't know there was two fingers more back fat on the, the, so they were obese. They had, I want to say 42% body uh, uh, muscle. Mm -hmm. So they were 42% muscle compared to 51% muscle for the ones that just substituted ground beef that we had that substitution in there. But the thing is both treatments, the, the mineral profile that the average American consumes is so out of whack that even the addition of, of nutrient-dense beef um, didn't offset that the mineral deficiency. So both groups got very brittle bones. I mean, very brittle bones. So they stopped moving. And some of the ribs would crack if they coughed. That's how brittle they got because the musculature. So it affected the more muscular pigs because they had more muscle and their contractions would cause 
uh, hairline fractures and things, and it would hurt to walk. Mm -hmm. So we collected bone tissue and we sent for bone mineral density uh, to get all that analysis on there. And it was, it, it, I'd have to look it up, but the, so the humerus versus the femur. So one diet had a less dense humerus and the other diet had less dense femur. So they flip-flopped. So the average in the middle is they were both very poor for their mineral density. And of course the bone was very much less developed in the smaller pigs that ate what Americans eat. And it was, it was a mess. Why would anybody eat that mm. stuff? But the pigs loved it. They ate it. We fed it at 4% of their body weight. So the ones that were growing, we pair fed them. So we grouped them with one, a companion pig, usually a litter mate that was, they were all, they were all females. And, um, we, we thought there might be that they would grow at a different rate. That's why we fed them as a percent body weight. So they both got calories based on their percent of body weight to even it out. But um, we, we had to terminate the study, but hmm. it was very telling. And I've got a, just the body composition part of that study is under review for Frontiers in Nutrition right now. So okay. hopefully we'll get that back soon with a positive review. Good luck. Um, so that reminds me, uh, you were the editor for an issue of uh, Animal Frontiers. Yes, that's the name. There we go. And if you hold it up a little higher, we can see the title at the bottom. Foods of Animal Origin, a Prescription for Global Health. I love it. Okay. So what... Um, can, can we just talk about some of the topics that were in that and, uh, get a sense of the global nature of, um, I think it's fair to say that FAO, UN, others are making predictions about what we need to achieve in the next 30 years to reach this 2050 target. And this is wrapped up in sustainable development and some other ideas. But one of the statements is that I believe it says that we have a, will experience a 66% increase in demand for animal source protein by 2050. And I think some of that is all confounded with the idea of we can't talk about anything, you know, can't talk about fat, can't talk about the nutrients that come with it because we're not just eating protein. But, and, and also I think it's also confounded by we now know that as we get to be old farts like me, that we need even more protein of animal source origin in our diet than we did before. So that means because we're going to have like 2 billion more old farts like me at 20, certainly 2100. So we're on the way by 2050. Um, that means that 66% is an underestimation by my calculations. So uh, points to why animal science, meat science, forage agronomy, agronomy needs to be working on all these issues globally. But one of the, uh, so there were a number of topics in that, um, which is free access people can, right. and I'll include the links that people can access this, but if you could just talk about some of the titles or some of the topics and I got a, uh, got a peek. So um, we talked about all the life stages here and the animal source foods. And one of my first authors is Minghao Tang. And she's been looking at uh, first foods, complementary foods uh, as children are weaned. Uh, from breast milk or bottle, and they, the lab she works out of, uh, she worked with Dr. Nancy Krebs, maybe you've heard her name out of, at, they're both at um, University of Colorado in, in Denver, I think that's right, and um, so they, they've done human studies where they, they give uh, pureed ham or pureed beef roast, so beef and gravy, if you will, so it's just beef with a sauce as the first food rather than cereals 
and they see a, a, a less progression of uh, obesity as these children age. They see uh, better cognitive development and superior growth. So I did this experiment with my own child. <laughs> when he was five months old, uh, my mother-in-law, who, you can't feed a baby beef <laughs> when they're five months old. And so she has her picture on Facebook. Can't believe I'm feeding my grandson uh, pureed beef here. But, man, he's he's tall, skinny kid. and He's six now, and he's doing well. So... It had to be from eating beef at five months of age, right? Of course. So that's There's that's no... the first that's the first thing because that's a stigma everybody has. Oh, we have to feed these easily digestible, very highly processed little grain puffs and well, porridge. We could talk and, to we could talk to like Professor that. Noakes about what happens when you suggest such things, but let's keep going. <laughs> and then the other so then then the opposite end of life that we were talking about, Peter, is the importance of high quality protein in the aging population. And as, as economic status in, improves, as you said, around the world, when people move into middle class, there are two things they look for. They look for meat and beer. <laughs> so because these are many times considered extravagant foods, you know, one's for reward, what other, they recognize, there's an inherent recognition, I believe, that that is better nutrition. So as they progress, they're going to start buying or have the capacity to buy uh, more nutrient-dense foods that, that taste better. So getting back to the aging population, we know that um, how important exercise is through life. But at that, same, at that same time, we need to maintain that muscle mass and so that people can thrive later in life because that's part of the problem with this recommendation for low fat that we had. I can remember when Triscuits were invented because my grandma in the early 70s was put on a low fat diet to improve her health. And of course her health started to go down after that because um, you, you, you go on that low fat diet and then you start eating more Triscuits, the whole grain, that's what it started. So rice cakes, you know, who invented that? What nutritive value are it? But people were eating those instead of having the foods they grew up on, you know, meat and potatoes. So uh, now I think the, the, the tide has changed a little bit. So people understand that they're going to need more high quality proteins and by high quality proteins it's what you and I've been talking about this whole time is having the correct amino acid profile the indispensable amino acids so that we can maintain a muscle mass so that we can maintain our posture so we don't fall down and break a hip so that we don't have a bad bone to start with because we're drinking milk and we're eating foods of animal origin to maintain our muscle mass our bone health so there's, there's uh, some colleagues of mine that, that, uh, from NDSU that wrote that chapter. And plus, there, there's a, I have a, a fantastic author out of India that talks about the global burden of malnutrition or the double burden of malnutrition. And that is why we have, we have malnutrition that leads to stunting and wasting, but it also leads to obesity in the same country. So in India, they're starting to see a big spike in, in type 2 diabetes there because of this, they're blaming it on a Western diet that's come in there. But it's basically, in my head, it's an imbalanced diet that over-index carbohydrates and under-indexes that high-quality protein that has the correct indispensable amino acids. You've, you've said indexing, What just so everyone By understands. By that I just mean, indexing means I over-consume carbohydrates, I under-consume high-quality amino acids. Okay. And then the big take-home, which I learned a ton about, is, are the, the articles out of Africa that talk about how raising livestock uh, improves the economic status of communities and in many cases, it's women power because women are given charge of the livestock. That gives them money. That gives them status in the community. That gets them respect. And that's, that was such a cool aspect to see. So now they're raising animals that are going to be consumed. So you're going to improve 
the ability of people to thrive mentally and physically, and you've got a great economic balancer between the genders there as well. So you're improving communities economically, mentally, and physically. That's so cool to me, that, that, that aspect that livestock has that huge of an impact. So why hasn't the UN just jumped all over raising livestock? You know, because it's they're going to burn down rainforests to raise livestock. It's, well, it's, I, yeah, I, I think they won't even not. talk about it. They can't talk about it in the so the dietary protein quality evaluation that report. I'm looking at it here. Uh, the Food and Animal Organization expert consultation on protein. It's a what is it? It's it's 80 pages long. They mention eggs three times. They mention dairy about five times, and there is no mention of meat anywhere in there. Uh, Unfortunately, I think belief and narrative and worldview is gotten in front and uh, and obscures data. And and hopefully, as one... um, person I spoke to said that he, he thought that this was going to be the decade of data over dogma. I hope he's right. Um, but um, certainly we can get information in front of people so that they can make truly informed or better informed uh, decisions on their own. And it's, it's obviously not a simple thing. We can talk about environmental issues. I think, you know, when That's people not- talk, when, when, no, when people talk about getting away from animal agriculture, it's how in the world can you do that when there is no either or? The animals are thoroughly integrated into agricultural systems globally. It looks a little different, but when, you know, the majority of the world's farmers still depend on draft animals, how are you going to replace that with a fleet of new tractors? Uh, it just... Um, you know, the majority of the world's fertilizer comes from manure. How are you going to replace that? And then, as you said, the, 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 the societal factors that, that, or affect that livestock farming plays in women and children's lives, um, economics, in development and all the work that's going on. And I hope to talk to more and more people who are active in those spheres to get people in the high income countries more aware of what's going on in the rest of the world so that maybe we're a little bit less susceptible to some of the arguments, the worldviews and the narratives that are coming at us. Believe me, they are there. They've got them lined up. They're not giving up yet. Um, So, You've, um, you've, we've covered a lot of territory, um, and there's so much more to go. Um, if, forgive the expression, but if a lay person, if somebody who is not so gifted as to be able to attend NDSU to major in meat science, um, what sorts of, of publicly available things could somebody start familiarizing themselves with? Yeah. Uh- I'm the I'm a former president of the American Meat Science Association. And I'm a fellow in that organization. They are the premier source for everything meat. Okay, so they are our professional organization of meat scientists, and their webpage is meatscience.org. And there there's lots of links. There's white papers in there. There's also another thing that your listeners can go to called Meat Myth Crushers. So. Uh, the Mythbusters is that popular TV show where they just bust different myths. Well, this is meat specific, where we look at uh, short videos that dive into um, some of that dogma that you're talking about. And they have a pretty big bank of different videos that are kind of fun to watch. They're short and fun to watch. And uh, so that's Meet Myth Crushers. They also that's have a good a document, a PDF by that title um, okay. that is pretty extensive in terms of the range of things that, you know, and, and they give sources so that people can check out where they're getting their information from that they present. So I, I recommend that one as well. Okay. There's, there's a couple of videos I have out there. I did a, 
uh, TEDx talk. That's the short one. That was very traumatizing, though, Peter. You know, because it takes away, it took away everything that is Eric Berg's presentation style. I had to stand in a five-foot circle. I couldn't move out of it. I couldn't really use slides. I just had to have pictures. I was not allowed to interact with the audience. And I always ask questions of the audience to get input, and we kind of have a discussion and everything. And I thought, well, that's what TEDx looks like when you see them. So I had to memorize it. I had to write everything. And so it's kind of funny because at the beginning, you see me, I just kind of freeze. And then I start laughing because I forgot my opening line. And, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then I went, oh, yeah, it's down there. I had cue cards. And then mm -hmm. so I kind of chuckle and I get into it. And uh, so that's the short one. But there's also uh, about an hour-long talk. I was invited down to South Dakota State University as part of their uh, university seminar series. And that is also called uh, Why Don't They Tell Us to Eat Like Pigs or Eating Like a Pig. So hmm. the, the Swine Science Club invited me. He sponsored me down for that. And that that's the real Eric Berg that you're talking about. I get to walk around on the stage. I get to talk to the audience. And it's much more enjoyable than my TED Talk. Scientists should not do TED Talks. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep that in mind. Um, so thank you for your time and thank you for all you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. Um, uh, got any questions for me? Turn the tables. I think I've hit you with a few as we, as we went around. Maybe I should have given you a heads up on a career related to meat science that you could no nope, it's fine it's fine um, <laughs> you'll be shooting me one by an email later i've got one i've got one well, you know but i could turn it around and say tell me one that agronomy doesn't you know yeah, right i know uh, um i mean i i i in fact i i came across a definition that said something about it's it's scientific and humanitarian which i really oh. liked um but you could say the same thing about meat science because um, I really do believe the, the statement that says we didn't evolve to eat meat, we evolved because we ate meat, yeah. um, or at least scavenged. Um, so I, I think that it is, I won't call it the oldest profession because that might get us off on something else, but clearly it's foundational to everything else. So it's, it's a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you and um, hopefully soon I'll find my way back in the, into the Dakotas. And um, I hope at that point that we can reconnect if not sooner and uh, good luck and good health to you. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. You too.